And what happened with Trump was one of the great intelligence catastrophes in American history. And FBI counterintelligence played a major, major role in that catastrophe. And they don't want to tell us how they screwed up. Getting Mueller to investigate is a little like having the fox uh, investigate the hen house. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I've been interviewing authors who've written about Trump and his presidency. In this episode, I spoke with Craig Unger, a journalist and writer who has a new book called American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. Craig is the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers American Compromat, House of Bush, House of Sod, and House of Trump, House of Putin. For 15 years, he was contributing editor for Vanity Fair, where he covered national security, the Middle East, and other political issues. He was a longtime staffer at New York Magazine and served as editor-in-chief of Boston Magazine and has contributed to many other publications. I asked Craig about his career and about how he came to write his new book and what it says. With all we know about Trump and his choice of the worst people as friends and associates, it's shocking that we elected him as president and that he's working on a comeback. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Craig Unger. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Craig, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. Uh, my name is Craig Unger. I'm a journalist and author. I've written seven books, and the last five have really been sort of a, of a piece about how the, the Republican parties war against democracy. My most recent one is uh, American Compromise. It's my second book on Trump and Russia. And in this one, I, I describe, among other things, how the KGB cultivated Donald Trump as an asset. Which is a shocking thing to think about an American president. It's absolutely astounding. I grew up in the 60s. I remember The Manchurian Candidate is one of my favorite movies when I was in high school. And it seemed so outrageous, this sort of paranoid conspiratorial culture that seemed impossible. And yet here we now have, and I have sources who went on the record who willing to go on TV, really talking about it from the KGB. Yuri Schwitz was a major in the KGB at a time in the 80s. He was at their Washington station and his colleagues in New York station were actually recruiting Donald Trump, then a young real estate developer, 
and bringing them into KGB fold as a, an asset. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty of that, and I read your book, I'm just curious, where did you grow up? I'm kind of interested in your path towards this series of books. What kind of family and where are you from? I grew up in Dallas, but I've lived in New York for the last 40 years. And originally, I, I was born here in New York. Uh, and my parents were sort of well-educated, affluent New York Jewish family. My father, who just died, was a doctor. My mother ran the bookstore, biggest independent bookstore in Dallas. It was a fairly affluent family, liberal. I went to Harvard. What did you study there in college? I majored in English, but more importantly, I was on the the Harvard Crimson the School newspaper. And that's how I got into journalism. And it was the 60s. It was Vietnam, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was against the Vietnam War. I guess you'd say I was always sort of more liberal than not. I became a journalist right out of college uh, uh, after the Crimson. I've written for... A lot of magazines. I was at New York Magazine and Vanity Fair for most of my career. Uh, I covered national security in the Middle East for Vanity Fair for about 15 years. Before that, I was with New York Magazine. But the journalism world has been dying. Magazines are basically dead. And since then, I've been writing books. When you come through the Crimson and you work at major publications as a reporter, you probably absorb a lot of rules of the trade or ethics. How do you see reporting? How do you approach when you're going after sort of the kind of topics that you've been recently where they're so murky and where you want to be accurate? How do you think about that? You soon realize as a reporter that not everything can be reported. And I guess I've chosen subjects that are a little... uh, on the edge and tried to figure out, can we get to the bottom of this? And in this case, and in some level, this is sort of one of those great quandaries for a reporter. How do you back up this kind of stuff? Well, I I had the unusual privilege of of getting a source, uh, Yuri Schwitz, who had been in the KGB. It was pretty easy to confirm that because he had testified before the United States Congress He had appeared on CBS 60 Minutes. He had published a book by Simon & Schuster about his days in the KGB. So he was sort of a certified KGB agent when I got to him. Corroborating a lot of what he said was what was extraordinary. I would hear him out in interviews that were mostly taped and then try to corroborate or refute what he said through other sources and You know, you have to read the book to figure out how well I did, I guess. But in many cases, I was able to find people who had interacted with Trump on a regular basis. And I think I outed a total of four KGB agents who had never been public as having ties to the KGB. And uh, I did find corroboration for that from independent sources from Yuri. When I read the book, It felt to me like because of the nature of what you're trying to show that a lot of what he gave you was sort of surmise, this fit a pattern, this is what we would have done in these instances. 
it's kind of an extraordinary claim that he was an asset. And I think that's a pretty flexible term. The term intelligence asset is a very broad term, and it's different than being an agent. An agent, an intelligence agent, is someone who knows he's been recruited by an intelligence service, and he can be tasked to perform certain operations, and someone's overseeing him doing that, and he has to report to them. Uh, The term agent is much broader and much looser. There are many different kinds of assets. And there's also the wonderful term, the useful idiot, the man who doesn't really know he's an asset, but who helps the intelligence service nonetheless. Yuri described Trump as, as a very specific kind of asset that is a special unofficial contact, that is someone who could be relied upon to do favors, and favors would be traded informally the KGB would do something for Trump, Trump would do something for them. It's true, as you suggested, that Yuri is a very highly trained intelligence analyst. And uh, in the KGB, you were trained to analyze certain things. When I started working on this, I started putting together timelines, chronologies, and you would see a series of events take place. And as you filled out the timeline, you would come into questions of causality. Well, if this happened, why did the next step happen? Yuri applied a lot of that to the case of Donald Trump. Uh, He knew the protocols. He knew the people involved in the operation, and he knew what they were doing. And so when it becomes revealed that the people who Trump was meeting with were part of the KGB, and the next step is he's invited to the Soviet Union, this was in 1987, we can see the invitation as being part of a KGB operation. I I think when you put together the whole sequence of events, and there are dozens and dozens of events, it's hard to interpret to find another explanation for what was going on other than Trump really was an asset for the KGB. How I read it, kind of having watched Trump and unfortunately, for the last bunch of years, was like Trump is willing to consort with anyone of any level of reputation down to the gutter. He's willing to take advantage of favors from anybody. He's willing to do favors for anybody. Do you think it goes as far as sort of a loyalty that he has to another power, which seems like It's just hard to see him having a loyalty to anyone except himself. Well, loyalty can mean different things. And I'm I'm not sure I I would never ascribe it as a value that he's. uh, It's not a good word for him for anybody with anybody. But I mean, the one way I look at it is if you look at money laundering with Donald Trump and the Russian mafia, and I write about this more in my previous book, House of Trump, House of Putin. And what, what you see is starting in 1984, a man named David Bogdan comes to Trump Tower. He has $6 million in cash. That's equivalent of about $15 million today. And he says, I'll take five condos. And what is going on is a transaction through an anonymous corporation who's buying these condos in an all-cash transaction. And those two predicates are the alarm bells that go off 
if you're investigating money laundering, anonymous uh, beneficial owner, all cash transactions. Now, Trump did those kinds of transactions with at least 1,300 condos. So he made an awful lot of money from that. And when we talk about loyalty, I would suggest he liked what he was doing. He liked that kind of operation. He benefited yeah, well, from I it. I can imagine him being very proud of having figured out a way to make that happen. Absolutely. So this goes to was Trump knowledgeable or not? And I would suggest doing the same thing 1,300 times suggests a pattern that means, yes, he was he was knowledgeable about what was going on. You don't just accidentally do 1,300 money laundering transactions. You point to this early transaction that Trump has where he buys a whole bunch of TVs from a particular seller with Russian connections in New York. Why is that important? Well, it's important because the seller turned out to be a KGB front. And and the seller, uh, Semyon Kislin, uh, according to Yuri Schwitz, was what was known as a spotter agent. A spotter agent is someone who literally spots potential assets or resources for the KGB. There's a lot we don't know about the transaction. We do know that it took place. I got that confirmed by Semyon Kislin. Uh, He wouldn't talk more about it, but he did say that he sold 200 TV sets to Donald Trump. And it's quite unusual if you think about it a lot. This was Trump's first major success as a real estate developer. It is now the Grand Hyatt Hotel uh, next to Grand Central Station. And uh, this came at a time when New York City was bankrupt. Trump got the option to develop the site for $1. He got enormous tax abatements for the next 40 years. And this was truly successful. A lot of his projects were complete failures. But this was a great success. But if you think about it, the Hyatt Hotel Corporation is a blue chip franchising outfit. Why are they buying their TV sets through uh, an operation run by Soviet emigres in downtown New York. There must be very reliable third-party vendors uh, that a, a, a company like Hyatt can find. This does lead to unanswered questions. It may just be they were offering Trump a great, great price. And it may just be that Simeon Kislin was really trying to get a new customer. The interested parties won't won't discuss it. But we know the transaction took place. and. The Kislin store was a KGB front. It's not just Yuri Spitz who told me that. I did talk to a former federal prosecutor named Kenneth McCallion, who was working with the FBI at the time, and he recalled staking out the electronics store. It was known as the Joy Ludd store. And so the FBI was keeping an eye on it because uh, this is where all the Russian spies would do their shopping. A lot of key officials in the Soviet Union went there, and uh, it was known to FBI counterintelligence as a spot of interest. For me, not knowing you know all that much about the subject, besides other reporting I've read before your book, it's extremely hard to distinguish between sort of, we have uncovered an obvious thing about Trump. 
many of the moves he makes as a president serves the Russians, right? There's plenty of connections he has with a with the Russian world. What's the difference between a conspiracy theory where you stitch these things together and the uncovering of something real? I think you have to understand the difference between criminal investigations where people are looking for the smoking gun, the smoking gun that will convict someone, and intelligence operations. And and this is something I try to make clear in the book because I feel very strongly what America needs was a serious counterintelligence investigation, and we have not gotten one. And when Trump first took office, uh, the FBI immediately started a counterintelligence investigation led by James Comey, who was then head of the FBI. And as soon as Trump took office, he fired James Comey because of that. As you will recall, Robert Mueller was then hired as a special counselor, and he was also mandated to do a counterintelligence investigation. But that never happened, or, or at least if it happened, it was buried. What Mueller reported was a criminal investigation. So if you look at all the convictions that Mueller got, even Paul Manafort was convicted on tax fraud and bank fraud charges. These are criminal charges, but he was not prosecuted for espionage. Now, we know, because it's in the Mueller report, that that Manafort got $75 million from Putin's allies. And we know he implemented all sorts of policies on behalf of Vladimir Putin again and again and again. And yet he's not been prosecuted for espionage. And what what I'm trying to show is that uh, Donald Trump did the same thing. There's a cause and effect. A good intelligence operation is designed to work within the law, to not violate the law. Otherwise, they get caught all the time. And I, and I show various operations in the book that took place that were perfectly legal, but had the same effect of being uh, an intelligence operation on behalf of the Russian Federation. For example, if you look at Donald Trump Jr. in October of 2016, about a month before the presidential election, he flew to Paris. He gave a talk at a French think tank. Uh, and he was paid $50,000 plus for it. Well, all of that is perfectly legal. There's nothing illegal about any of that. What is sort of fishy is that the French think tank turned out to be a front for Russian intelligence. And during those meetings in which he gave his speech in Paris, Donald Trump Jr. was told all the the, the various bullet points that Russia wanted from the next president of the United States. They wanted Trump as president to implement in the Middle East. And sure enough, a year later, after Trump had become president, he withdrew American troops from Syria. Uh, he abandoned our Kurdish allies, and he left Russia with a much more powerful position in the Middle East. That's exactly what they wanted. So that is sort of an intelligence operation that is perfectly legal. And that's how things operate. You make the point that the Mueller report focuses on being a criminal investigation rather than counterintelligence. And that was highlighted by some of the Democratic congressmen. Is that because we picked, you know, 
it was run by lawyers basically, or was there a way, was that thrown, moved that way? Was there a way that this could have been done that would have really turned over the stones that needed to be turned over? Well, Mueller, of course, had been director of the FBI himself. Now that I've written two books on it, it's just staggering to me that what's not in the Mueller report, and I say that because uh, it's in, there's a lot of stuff that's in my book that came from FBI files. So I was saying earlier, I was describing the kind of money laundering that took place between Trump and uh, Russians who were buying his real estate. I mean, it, it is absolutely inconceivable that Mueller didn't know about all that, and yet it's nowhere in the Mueller report. And all I can suggest is, uh, you know, the FBI isn't answering these questions that you're asking, but it's it's pretty clear to me that FBI counterintelligence, this was their job. They were supposed to uncover what was going on. This, and what happened with Trump was one of the great intelligence catastrophes in American history, and FBI counterintelligence played a major, major role in that catastrophe, and they don't want to tell us how they screwed up. Getting Mueller to investigate is a little like having the Fox uh, investigate the hen house. Your book is full of so many seamy things from an underworld that is not familiar to me. I don't want to go through all of it. I want to ask you more about, about sort of this series that you're on. How do you now view kind of the history of the last, you know, years since, say, 2000? I would go back even farther. Uh, I mean, b- b- before all the the stuff with Russia happened. Well, you go kind of go back to Bush one. Exactly. And I think one thing that ties them all together, and again, it goes to the point I just made about counter uh, intelligence operations being legal, is a, a colleague of mine, Michael Kinsley, a journalist, came up with a wonderful phrase, I have to give him credit, that the real scandal is what is legal. An awful lot of corruption, of what I think of as corruption, uh, of quid pro quos to put forth policies that are really damaging to the United States, a lot of that can be done through completely legal means. And we've seen that happen again and again and again. That's what I was just describing with the Mueller report. All this money laundering I'm talking about, and Trump may have made hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars out of that. But technically, it's very, very difficult to prosecute him because you have to prove he is knowledgeable. And Trump can always say, well, how would I have known uh, these people were mobsters, that they, they got their money through illicit means? And it is exceedingly hard to prove. It's hard to prove his state of mind. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I, I, I think I might, if I were, I think I might argue, well, if he does the same thing 1,300 times in a row, that's not an accident. You don't just say, oops, I laundered some money. Oops, I laundered some money. You can't do that 1,300 times in a row. You, If you do it that often, you know what's going on. I think this is the problem, and it's, it's endemic to American culture. When I started journalism 50 years ago, I remember being uh, agog at K Street lobbyists and what they really did. And these, of course, are the powerful white-collar, white-shoe lawyers in uh, in Washington who would lobby for the oil industry or Big Pharma 
or uh, banking industry or whatever. And they would put a lot of money into super PACs for various congressmen who would then push through legislation to benefit the industries that they were lobbying for. Well, you, you can look at that almost as legalized bribery in a way. It's one thing when it's working for big oil or big pharma or, or whatever, but those techniques were adapted by uh, lobbyists like Paul Manafort and Roger Stone to work for dictators uh, all over the world in the Philippines and Africa, and now with Russia and Vladimir Putin. When Paul Manafort started working in Ukraine for Yanukovych became president, and he was Vladimir Putin's guy. That was Putin's way of of taking over Ukraine from within. Paul Manafort was a point man, and he also became Donald Trump's campaign manager. So to me, this is all hiding in plain sight. What Paul Manafort did is a matter of public record, and Donald Trump continued to do it once he became president. What do you think is the biggest misconception about Donald Trump now that you've like looked at him intensively from this angle? A lot of what he does is really pure and simple organized crime. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prosecutor. But it seems to me I'm sort of a god that RICO statutes, that the, the racketeering statutes have not been used against him. And that's what I would have loved to have seen happen. We have, a, in a lot of ways, our country's in denial and we don't want to get to the bottom of things. Or as I was saying earlier with the FBI, it's not in the FBI's interest to get to the bottom of it. They don't want to reveal things that, in which they participated. Uh, one of the things I've reported again and it tends to get lost is two FBI directors William Sessions and Louis Free ended up working for powerful uh, uh, Russians who were part of all this. William Sessions uh, was the attorney after he served as head of the FBI. He became the attorney for Simeon Mogilevich, who's enormously wealthy, powerful Russian mobster who works hand in hand with Russian intelligence, with the FSB. His own lawyer was head of the FBI. I mean, just think about that for a moment. William Sessions is making millions of dollars off that. What kind of message does that send to uh, FBI agents who are investigating all of this? And then he was followed by Louis Free, who bought a beautiful house in uh, Palm Beach right next to Mar-a-Lago and represented Prevazon which, of course, was one of the Russian companies involved in all sorts of corruption that led to the Magnitsky Act. What does it say to you about our democracy that someone with the just sordid associations that Trump had can kind of conquer it and become president? The money talks and that, that lawyers can, you know, are capable of, of putting together legal means of working their ways around strictures that should be more strictly enforced to prevent real corruption. I think there's nothing new to, new in this in a way. I mean, I, I think it goes back to the days of the robber barons and so forth, and we've always had this problem. Early on in my research with regard to Trump and Russia, 
I was talking to an American businessman who had done work in Russia just after the Soviet Union crumbled. This was back in the early 90s. By the way, this has been going on for more than 20 years. It does go back to the 90s. And you, if you remember Speaker of the House, Tom DeLay, he made a lot of trips to Russia. At the time, this Russian, I guess you'd call him a businessman, but he, I mean, he was sort of a mobster, wanted to bribe Tom DeLay. And the American businessman who was my source said, no, 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 that's illegal. You can't bribe him. And instead, he sent him to these K Street lobbyists who uh, uh, made sure the money went through some super PAC to Tom DeLay. Well, I mean, essentially, it was just a legalized form of bribery. And the Russians were, uh, mobster was elated and said, oh, you've legalized bribery. How wonderful. Probably the most egregious thing that happened under Trump happened just, seems to me, just after you closed your book, which was the January 6th, the attempted insurrection at the Capitol. How do you fit that into the plot? Well, I still think we don't know everything about it. As you say, it did, it did happen after my my book had uh, had gone to the publishers. But uh, Russia did have a role in it. They were promoting QAnon, for example. Reuters did a lot of reporting on that. So you have this cult-like conspiracy stuff. And that's one of the things Russia does so well and is uh, they figure out the fissures in our culture. And there are a lot of them in, in a lot of problems. If you look in our history, the Russians take those and exacerbate it. And they, they, polar, they accentuate the polarization. And they've been able to do it very, very effectively through social media. I think that's responsible in large part for the wackiness of the conspiracy theories that are being more and more widely accepted by tens of millions of people. Including who won the election. Exactly. Craig, what's your next book? Uh, I don't know yet. I, I, you know, I think this era, you know, Donald Trump uh, is off center stage right now, but it's not over yet. The Russians are still very much there. If you look in the wings, there are a lot of people who want to replace Trump, whether it's uh, Tucker Carlson or Josh Hawley. There are a lot of people who are still in that camp who are playing major roles on the national stage. It's quite interesting because Biden got into office with a razor thin majority in Congress, you know, 50-50 in the Senate, uh, a thin majority in the House. Whether he can keep that or not, uh, we don't know. And I think he's gotten off to a very strong start but we don't know how things will play out. Remember, there are things going on like the solar winds hacking by Russia. This is still going on right now. We are having very strong sanctions against Russia because of the solar winds hacking. But we have no idea how deeply they penetrated, how widely they penetrated. One little episode that will give you pause. I mean, I, I, I don't know if people followed the hacking of the water treatment center in Tampa where hackers got into the computers that regulated the water supply for in Tampa, Florida. They ratcheted up the amount of lye in the water by a factor of 100 so that it would poison the people of Tampa. Fortunately, someone really was paying attention in Tampa 
and uh, stopped the damage before it was too late. But it gives one pause. There's nothing more elemental than water, I would argue. And uh, how many other places has that happened to in which it has not been detected? Your title with the word compromat in it seems to suggest that they have something on him or and that others do as well. Do you have any predictions about how that might play out or suspicions about how that affects his decision making? I can speculate. I, I mean, but it's it's no more than that. One thing is is Trump is not nearly as valuable to Russia as he once was, simply because he's he's not president. So at some point, it might uh, be worthwhile for someone to release some of the compromise in Russia, uh, whether it, it's the Russian Federation itself, whether it's by Putin or a successor or people within the FSB, which is one of the successors to the KGB. Obviously, when people talk about compromise, everyone starts asking about uh, the golden showers and that kind of thing. I don't know that that's the kind of compromise they have. They may have sex videos. I don't know. But it's pretty certain they would have records uh, and documentation of uh, money Trump has received as a result of this. You know, it, it's also been distressing to me that I, I think American investigators have not even been looking at the right years. We know that New York authorities have uh, finally gotten some of the tax records. I don't think they went back far enough. I mean, I talked about uh, at least go to reporting back to the 1980s, and they did not get tax records for for those years at all. Is there a question that you haven't been asked by someone that you wish you had been? There are enormous blind spots, and and I try to get at them. And what, what is enormously frustrating to me, the last two books have both made the New York Times bestseller list, so I suppose I can't complain. But uh, the recent one, you know, I've gotten no national TV coverage, and I, I think these are the key questions that are not always part of the national conversation. And I think they really should be part of the national conversation. And I keep trying to do that. There does seem to be a very deliberate and maybe very smart effort by the Biden administration to not give Trump attention. The only worry that I have is that he's still lurking. He probably will run again or bless someone like him. And he's still very dangerous. I would like to see a real effort to investigate him on the federal level, not just, you know, some of the things going on in New York. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I do think it is smart of Biden to take care of COVID. Absolutely. To, to vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. And uh, if you remember, Biden was derided as Sleepy Joe by Trump. And in fact, he's been... Uh, enormously forceful and and focused and and I think that's terrific. But there are other parts of the government that where we need to get oversight. Uh, Congress has to be forceful in oversight. The the Justice Department has to do that as well. And frankly, I I think there are real glitches when it comes to prosecuting espionage or. Uh, going after counterintelligence, and that's where things really need to be done. And the FBI and the CIA should be on it. And I'm not at all confident that they they are doing their 
their utmost to get to the bottom of it. It does seem like there's a set of laws that need to be changed to cover things that are really not covered right now. Absolutely. Craig, it's, it's great to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Not that I can think of. That was Craig Unger, author of American Compromat. Craig is Craig Unger on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.